This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. WVEZ is supported by Chicago Humanities, presenting live events with historians Doris Kearns Goodwin and John Meacham, comedian Reggie Watts and filmmaker Miranda July, and artists Hebrew Brantley and Amanda Williams in conversation, plus MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Velshi on small yet powerful acts of courage throughout history. Tickets for these events and more conversations on arts, culture, and current affairs at chicagohumanities.org. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories that you might have missed. Stories like these. McDonald's CEO Chris Kempchinski apologizing several times over the last week after those texts he sent to Chicago's mayor came to light. He also said he has a, quote, very narrow worldview through his own background and that his comments revealed his ignorance, something that he is accountable to change. It remains to be seen how the apologies are received. House Select Subcommittee held a hearing about a vaccine hesitancy at Chicago's Malcolm X College today. Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the Illinois' top doctor among those testifying. Chicago could soon have its first majority Asian American ward. That's the hope of many community leaders who want to see Chinatown and the surrounding area included in a single ward as part of the city's once a decade remap. Joining me for those stories and more, WVON commentator and attorney Kimberly Agoen. Hi Kimberly, great to have you again. Sasha, it's such a pleasure to be with you today. Also with us is Alex Nitkin, editor and city hall reporter for the Daily Line. Welcome back, Alex. Hey, thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad you're here. We're going to start with the latest on COVID, folks. As it gets colder, I knew we'd get here. People are planning for the holidays, and now COVID cases are surging. On Wednesday, state health officials announced more than 5,000 new cases, the highest daily total in two months. Kimberly, what are you hearing from your listeners? Are they wearing masks? Are they concerned? What's up? Yeah, you know, and Alex, it's very nice to meet you as well. Um, I think that everyone is still trying to wear masks unless they are around people that they know have been vaccinated and they have some type of comfort level to that degree. But, Sasha, you know, the issue is that I think we're starting to understand that we're going to have to just manage expectations. This is something that is not going away anytime soon. And as you know, we're in Chicago. It's really starting to get cold now. Holiday season is coming. We're all going to, you know, be retreating indoors. I don't know to what degree we'll be around lots of people. It's one of those things that, you know, we we might have to just treat COVID-19 the way that we've always treated the flu. It's something that may be expected. Um, We've got the vaccinations. Chicago has named it the Vaccination Awareness Day. It was kind of put together a little bit fast and hasty, but children now at all ages can get the vaccine. There's a lot of access to the vaccine, but there are still people who are very concerned about getting even children vaccinated. So we're really going to have to hunker down at this point. And that's what I think I'm seeing. People are disappointed. They're not able to do everything that they want to do. But also, I think many people understand that that's just the ride that we're in for. 
Well, let's talk more about that vaccination awareness day. My kids are home right now because a week ago, Chicago Public Schools canceled today's classes, hoping to motivate other parents to get their kids vaccinated. Mine already have the shot. So, so Kimberly, you say you hear that people are concerned. Are, are parents scrambling to find child care? Huh. You know, I don't know that parents are scrambling to find child care. I think that there is just a a division right now. Well, first of all, as you mentioned, this day was really put together very quickly, right? And that always throws a wrench into plans for what people are going to do with their children. So the city should have probably thought that went through a little bit more. But now you've got this idea, you've got a lot of people, just as yourself, you've gotten your children vaccinated, but there's still some people who are on the fence about it. I, um, one thing, Sasha, that I, I think I'm noticing that if, if we've seen anything from the rollouts of the vaccines, and they have been very successful, I think that our population is basically telling us that we need decades before we can get 100% comfortable oh, with boy. getting everyone vaccinated. Oh, boy, that's that's not encouraging at all. Um, you know, Taking it further nationally, about 1 million 5 to 11-year-old kids have gotten their first COVID shot, Kimberly. Um, Chicago's public health commissioner, Dr. Allison Arwoody, said more than 6,000 kids in that age group in Chicago have gotten vaccinated. Out of the city's more than 210,000 kids in that age group. What do you make of those numbers? 6,000 out of 210,000. It's going to start to ramp up. Um, as we have seen, you know, initially when the, this COVID-19 hit our shores, there were rumors that it wasn't going to impact children, and the numbers were bearing out because we were all staying away from each other, right? This is before we had the vaccine and before we, you know, really got knee-deep in everything. But as we started to come back together, as schools started to open, we started to see, yes, children could be impacted. And not only can children be impacted, they can get this disease, bring it home, and harm other people. I think that that many parents have a high um, acceptance of this is something that I need to get for my child, and they're trying trying to wade their way into it. But there's still a population that is saying, I may trust it for myself, but my child is developing. And as I said, there, there has not been decades of research behind the vaccine for children, this particular vaccine for children. So some people may drag their feet a little bit, but I think you're going to see those numbers go up. In other COVID news, Alex, 23 more labor unions are challenging Mayor Lightfoot's vaccine mandate. What are the details? This is something that we've been continuing to see play out. I mean, most visibly uh, with the Fraternal Order of Police in that uh, arbitration that is now ongoing after it uh, Cook County judge ruled that they have to go back to the negotiating table to talk about that. But also we know that it's it's not just them. There are other labor unions working in the city, like the Chicago Federation of Labor, that we know usually has a really strong relationship with the mayor in the city, but has really expressed some uh, concerns about, you know, any kind of mandate, mandating anyone to be vaccinated. So, you know, we've seen that most City departments, um, aside from the police department and fire department, which are much lower, are much you know better at, at 95% or above at complying with the city's vaccination policy. But it's something that we are continuing to see, um, you know, play out and go back and forth, and including in the courts.
And that ruling that they received, uh, Alex, just to just to join in, the ruling that the Chicago Order for Fraternal of, uh, Order of Police received, saying that the members are not subjected to that deadline until it goes through arbitration, that's the, that gave the wind uh, beneath the wings of the other labor unions. Because here's the thing: labor unions live and die by their ability to to make decisions and to negotiate on behalf of their members. So they really can't be caught allowing um, another body to just mandate things without them going through the arbitration. So that really has helped them, and also it's gone through appeals, and, and uh, the city's appeal was shot down. Mm-hmm. So you're going to see more activity here as the laborers fight to maintain their power. Uh, things are heating up in the city council as the deadline approaches for Chicago aldermen to approve a new ward map based on the most recent census data. Alex, can we start with the the battle between the Black Caucus and Latino Caucus? Yeah, this is something that has really been underlying the entire debate pretty much ever since we saw the first uh, census numbers coming out showing that the Latino uh, Latino population in the city has been steadily increasing, but the African-American population, unfortunately, has really um, cratered in the past decade. And obviously, we could spend a whole other amount of time talking about why that is, but the fact is that uh, the city's black population is, is about 10% almost lower than it was in 2010, and that's going to have really serious implications for the number of you know majority black wards that are going to be represented in the city council uh, in order to comply with the Voting Rights Act. Um, right now, the uh, city council has, or at least it was drawn in the last remap, that 18 majority black wards. It actually is now lower than that because the 27th ward, which includes, you know, Fulton Market on the near west side, has become a lot whiter. Um, but the bottom line is that the Black Caucus is really fighting to preserve all of the majority black wards that uh, are on the map. They say that they're entitled to that under federal law, under the Voting Rights Act. Um, the Latino Caucus, of course, is saying, well, our population has grown, and so we want to, uh, you know, bring the city council ward map a little more in parity with the city's actual population. And so we saw them come out with this proposal that would increase the number of majority Latino wards from 13 to 15. um, And that would be at the expense of one uh, South side majority, currently majority black ward, the 17th ward. It would be pushed a little bit West to incorporate some Latino population growth on the Southwest side where it's been the strongest. So in terms of the details, the back and forth, so much of it is playing up behind closed doors. You know, it's up to the, city council to work this out amongst themselves. And we are just sort of watching to see what comes out of it. But we definitely know that those are sort of the the inputs of this conflict that's happening. And we're just trying to listen for any details on how it might actually work out. Kimberly, do you think that the Black Caucus will be able to hang on to their 18 wards? Um, I think that when people are in power, (laughs) they are going to do everything they can in order to maintain that level of power. So I I don't know if it will um, max out at the 18, but I know that there are, you know, they're giving – individuals like you and me the opportunity to draw the, the map that we think should be in place and there are organizations that have done as much. But no one cedes power without a fight. So I think that it's going to be very interesting to see which alliances line up because we have not talked about white communities during this discussion. What deals will be brokered in order to have everyone or at least two out of the three satisfied with the ultimate map? Well, as we discussed last hour, 
there's also been a big push within the Asian American community to get a majority Asian ward. Is that right, Alex? There is. I think there's a really wide recognition that, listen, this is the fastest uh, growing racial group in the city. It's now about 7% of the city's population. And there's just this wide recognition that it's time, that it's not right, that there are zero uh, uh, wards that are represented by, that include a majority Asian population, that there are zero Asian American city council members in a city where if we're going by absolute, you know, parity, there would be at least three city council members. So I think this is something, you know, the caucuses agree upon. It's a pretty safe bet, I think, at this point, that the map at the end of the day is going to have at least one majority Asian ward in, you know, on the near south side covering what you call sort of greater Chinatown, Chinatown mm-hmm. stretching into, you know, Bridgeport and the Kimberley Park. Um, but interestingly, we've also heard groups like, you know, Asian Americans Advancing Justice and the Hana Center say, we also want to unite, you know, the South Asian population in Westridge that right now is divided between the 40th and the 50th ward, or we want to uh, unite the, you know, Albany Park, which has a really substantial Asian American population and is divided among three wards right now. That's Alex Nitkin of The Daily Line and Kimberly Agoin of WVON. And don't go away. There's plenty more where that came from, including these stories. Dramatic moments today in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. The defense resting its case late today, just 24 hours after Rittenhouse took the stand in his own defense. The Chicago Park District fallout continues tonight with the resignation of board president Avis Lavelle. A recent University of Chicago graduate shot and killed during an attempted robbery near the campus. Students on and off campus are being told to be vigilant. The shooting happened a mile away from businesses and cars shot up, leaving a trail of shattered windows along 52nd Street. So let's get right to it. Kimberly, you're with me, right? No pressure. <laughs> All right, no pressure. But we, we've got some stories that I know you've been on top of. Uh, let's talk yeah. about McDonald's workers and a coalition of community groups who are calling for CEO Chris Kempsinski to be fired after texts showed that he blamed parents for the fatal shooting of two kids. What are the critics and protesters saying? I think that when um, the CEO of one of the top corporations in the world makes a, a statement, an offhand comment in that way. And today he is, based, oh, oh, so let's talk about the comment. What he said was that the deaths of Adam Toledo and also the young girl, Jaslyn, who was killed, Jaslyn Adams, who was killed in a McDonald's parking lot mm-hmm. by gunfire, that was the problem or that was the cause um, the parents failed those children. And this was an offhand comment. I'm sure he never thought that this would get out, but FOIA will let everything out. It was a comment that he meant made in an email or a text to the mayor. Um, When a CEO can be that uh, reckless about making a comment like that and not understand the implications that it can have and the backlash that it would have, because he has got everyone in the country, uh, black, white, Latino, everyone patronizes this business. It's a cautionary tale. Now, here's the thing. They have created commercials to ask for him um, to speak with different groups in the community because he seems out of touch to them, and they've also asked for him to resign. What he is saying is that this is a teachable moment and that he is willing to learn and work on himself. But many people would say that once you get to this top position, that is going to be unacceptable as an apology because you you should be camera ready at this point and not making these types of disparaging remarks. What has Chris said about the the texts to Mayor Lightfoot? 
in the text, the one that has gotten him in trouble, the text stated that those two children, their parents failed them. The death of the, the black little girl and Latino little uh, well, 13-year-old who were both killed, that the failure was on their parents, not thinking about all of the violence that's happening or in and around the city and all of the myriad of things that could have gone into this. And he is blaming it on his own ignorance, being uh, sheltered, I guess, in his own little world. But that is you know, to many, very unacceptable because you're running a multinational, international corporation. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how that's going to work for him. Anything you're hearing from your listeners on this? Well, I will say that, (laughs) believe it or not, um, I have to be fair. Some feel like it's reckless. And in some cases, people feel like to a degree, it is a failure of the parents. Um, when you look at some circumstances of what uh, people have said, Adam Toledo, you know, that he was having issues, behavioral issues and that type of thing um, before all of this happened, which I haven't, it hasn't been substantiated, but that those are some of the things that they have said, or whatever involvement the little girl's father may have been involved in. Some people are harder on parents and saying that it's a parent's job to ensure that no matter what, their child is never put in harm's way. So you've got some who are in agreement, but don't necessarily feel that it was his place mm-hmm. um, to say these types of things, not knowing anything about the circumstances that surrounded the deaths of these children. All right, let's move on to Kyle Rittenhouse. Uh, testimony has concluded in uh, the murder trial of that 18-year-old suburban Antioch man, Uh He cried, Kimberly, when he testified about that night that he shot three people and killed two. What did you make of that? Well, I think that he attempted a performance at crying. Um, I did not see any tears really stroll down his face, but I will give him an A for effort. I was looking for them, too. Um, Yeah, Couldn't find them. Yes. So he did break down on the on the on the stand, and many people feel like it was not a, a very uh, earnest um, display. But he de- he definitely broke down. Um, but I will say this to the defense, his defense team, they have done a masterful job of putting on a defense for him and portraying him as a victim, as you can see in that one scene, uh, allowing that to happen. Normally, if, if uh, someone who is testifying breaks down like that, your, your counsel would, uh, would say, you know, we need to take a break. But in this, time, in this case, the defense said, let it ride, and then the judge ultimately said, let's take a break. So it's going to be very interesting to see. Um, we saw some missteps, uh, what I would characterize as missteps with the prosecutor, especially in prosecuting the one gentleman who was the only person who survived being shot by Kyle Rittenhouse. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. And now it's time for the jury to get the case. Um, They have a little bit of a different standard in Wisconsin in which they pick 20 people to hear the case. They've already lost two, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and then they put all of the names, I guess, on, in balls in like a, a bingo roll <laughs> and decide which will be the final 12 that will listen to the case. The Chicago Police Department is actually canceling days off in anticipation of uh, the Rittenhouse verdict. Is that standard procedure, Kimberly, or an indication that there could be some real trouble when this verdict comes down? Well, Sasha, I'll be honest. I have not seen that type of energy around this case. And you have to remember, this case results from a protest of Jacob Blake, the African-American man being shot in the back and paralyzed by a white police officer. So this was a a crime or um, 
uh, a killing that resulted from a protest. So what they're planning on is a protest of a trial of a protest. You know, it's, it, it, I just don't see the energy around it. But what I will say is that the city of Chicago during all of the George Floyd trials was caught, what I would say, flat-footed when it came to defending property um, throughout the communities. And I think that they are just trying to get a jump start so that nothing like that happens in this event. But I think that this is far less likely of an event to happen in the event Rittenhouse is acquitted um, in this case in Wisconsin, which is a whole state away. All right. Uh, jump right back in with me here, Alex. We got to talk about fallout this week and the sexual harassment and assault scandal involving some of Chicago's lifeguards. Get us up to speed. Yeah, I mean, really just the latest domino to fall in this really uh, upsetting saga. Avis Lavelle, who is the president of the Chicago Park District Board of Commissioners, resigned uh, this week. She said that it was not uh, no one asked her to do it. You know, the mayor didn't ask her to do it. This was she announced right at the end of this week's monthly board meeting where they also were talking about their budget. Um, this is following a lot of pressure, though, from, uh, you know, a good handful of aldermen have been calling on her. Some have even been calling on the entire Park District Board of Commissioners to resign. But mm-hmm. more has really come out in large part, I should say, because of the reporting of WBEZ that Avis uh, Lavelle had in in addition to uh, former Park District Superintendent Michael Kelly, who resigned a few weeks ago, that both of them knew a lot more than they had let on about the heinous allegations of sexual abuse um, and harassment that had been happening at Chicago Park District uh, uh, lifeguard um, staffs. We have learned that she had known about some of these, you know, an investigation was ongoing at least since uh, summer of 2020, and yet the Park District leadership really did not do anything on a systemic basis to put any reforms or changes into practice until after WBEZ, you know, broke this and, and started really heavily reporting on it back this past spring. So this is, you know, a, a big shoes to fill in terms of someone, you know, who's her experience there. She's been the, at the park on the Park District board since 2011. Um, and so now it's going to fall on Mayor Lightfoot to appoint someone else, and they're going to step into a similar situation like now acting Superintendent Rosa Escarino to, um, you know, make some changes, potentially fire some people, put new policies into place that can really help restore the public's trust in the Park District, whose reputation has taken such a, uh, a beating rightfully over the past couple of months. Yeah. Let's turn to a story that you've been covering this week, Alex, and that's gambling. Uh, it seems like everybody wants in on the action here. And, and I want you to start with the ordinance that the city's sports teams are pushing. It, it would allow betting at and around stadiums. Where's that ordinance and, and who's backing it? Yeah, well, let's back up a little bit. It goes back to the 2019 law that was passed by the Illinois State Legislature to really open up gambling and and gaming in all different facets. They included a provision allowing um, municipalities to then, you know, allow on on their own gambling, betting, at sports arenas with more than 17,000 seats, really just looking at you know, the big the ballpark, Soldier Field, um, and the United Center in Chicago, this was a part of the Illinois, you know, legislature's plan to fund infrastructure mm-hmm. projects through its capital plan. And so this year, over the summer, you saw Alderman Walter Burnett, who's the alderman who represents the area where the United Center is, finally come through and say, okay, let's t- now take that next step. 
of under city code legalizing sports betting at it would be those five venues um the guaranteed rate wrigley united center soldier field and now thanks to a, a new amendment to the state law Wintrust arena where the sky play his reasoning is we might as well just move forward with it this is part of the state's plan from the beginning uh, and it will help maybe bring more traffic to these areas, bring more people to the United Center, say, when there isn't necessarily a game or a concert and help out some surrounding businesses and bars. Now, this has faced a lot of pushback from those who are applying to operate a city-backed casino that is separately in the works on sort of a parallel track here. Yeah. Especially Neil Bloom, who is... Uh, you know, the billionaire casino magnate, head of uh, uh, Rivers Casino, who has put in two of those applications. He's really fighting this on the grounds of if you allow sports betting anywhere else, it could hurt the revenue from a future Chicago casino. And that's important because those revenues are going to be used to shore up the city's police and fire pension funds. Wow, so much going on there. Mayor Lightfoot now has, what, five proposals on her desk for this casino? That's right. Five. Two of them are from... Rush Street and, and Bloom, they would be at the the new 78 mega development on the near south side or the lakeside east, uh, sort of eastern wing of the McCormick Center that isn't really used. We also have two applications in from uh, New Rhode Island-based Bally's. One of them would be at the old uh, Tribune Printing Center at Chicago and Halstead. The other would be from Bally's at... Uh, the Marshall Yards, just across from the former site of the Michael Reese Hospital, the local alderman there, um, Sophia King, is really opposed to that and trying to rule that out because the community there has really been opposed to a casino anywhere near that site. Mm-hmm. And then the fifth is proposed by Hard Rock International for the site of the potential one central development proposed over the metro tracks across from Soldier Field. So those are the five possibilities we're looking at now. Kimberly, let's talk about crime here. Uh, well, first, uh, police. This, this week, CPD Superintendent David Brown, he called for the firing of the sergeant who led the raid of Anjanette Young's home. Uh, the Civilian Office of Police Accountability also released a 63-page report recommending disciplinary action for more than a half dozen officers. What's the latest there? Yeah, so the latest is that, just as you said, his name is, I believe, Alex Walensky. They're saying that he violated eight departmental rules when he and six other officers raided um, Miss Young's home. And basically, they're saying that he, uh, Sergeant Corey Petraco and Officer Allen Aprogayo, um, they obtained the warrant, who was the person who actually obtained the faulty warrant to raid her house. They should all face significant suspensions up to and including separation from CPD. And I got all of my information on that from WTTW. So, yeah, it has taken over two years to get to this point, but he is making these recommendations. He's also making recommendations for suspensions for at least five other officers who were at the home. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, unfortunately, they were recommending a suspension for deceased officer Ella French, who actually was seen as one of the heroes of that scene. She's the only officer who was there who offered Miss Young clothing and helped her get dressed. Um, they're saying that because she didn't turn her body cam on in enough time that she should have also been suspended and her family 
Haley is completely outraged that they would uh, desecrate her memory in that way. And more police officers and surveillance cameras are, are coming to the Hyde Park neighborhood after a violent day. It led to two deaths, including a recent U Chicago graduate. And uh, congressional candidate, candidate Jamal Cole says that he also had to hide from the gunfire on Tuesday. What have you been hearing about how the neighborhood's reacting to this? So Hyde Park, it's an interesting situation. It's on the south side of Chicago. And, of course, you know the University of Chicago takes up a huge footprint in that area. And to the degree that anyone who has visited has often seen individuals like security officers standing on corners all around Hyde Park. So there has been some effort to try and dissuade crime from happening there. But, Sasha, we are just living at a time in which all bets are off. Um, you're never going to hear uh, police officers say anymore that crime is contained to the south and west sides, which is something that they used to say yeah. to kind of make other people in, in what, quote-unquote, better communities feel safer. So what you're seeing right now is crime has spread out around the city. You've got shootings at an all-time high. You've got murders at an all-time high. And you know, I think that people in, in position are hard-pressed to figure out what to do about it, but the chances right now are better than ever for them to figure out what to do about it because you have crime-impacting neighborhoods that never experienced this type of crime and violence um, before. So we're talking about getting cameras, we're talking about more police, you know, and all of that. But at the end of the day, there's going to have to be a real reckoning about what will get rid of this violence. What is the real course and path to be on? Because the crime is everywhere now. It is literally everywhere. Well, to that end, Kimberly, one of the former hosts at WVON, Mays Jackson, was the victim of a carjacking this week. Also, our team here at Reset, we were sad to hear that uh, Corey Luckett's store, Englewood Branded, was recently burglarized. We had done a, a live broadcast from his store, and he was so nice and so welcoming to us. So I guess the, the silver lining here is, is all the support that he got from, from the, the community after the burglary. But are your listeners telling you on a daily basis just how fed up they are with all of this, the crime Have and the been, violence? And, oh, yeah. They've been fed up for decades now because, as I stated, in many of the communities where people live who listen to our show and our audience, they have been experiencing this, and they have been crying into the wind about it. But because it's not impacting certain people, you know, the, the cries have gone unheeded. Yeah. Now that it has been spread all around, it's a major issue. And, Sasha, another thing that we need to also – the face of crime and violence in Chicago for so long has been uh, put on – African-Americans, um, when Mays Jackson was carjacked, that was a white individual from a suburb, from Will County. Um, so th this is spread. The, the victims are all over the place. You're not going to be able to nail down what the perpetrator looks like. Mm -hmm. So really, we've got to get back to basics about really trying to figure out what it's going to take to stop the violence. Just a few seconds left, Alex. In what's being called the Battle of the Billionaires, Ken Griffin, the founder of Chicago-based hedge fund Citadel, says he plans to go all in to support a candidate who can defeat Governor Pritzker. Real quick, what do you make of this? Yeah, I mean, this was the question that we've been waiting to see, whether there's going to be a really serious challenge to Pritzker, who has, you know, basically unlimited money to spend and has already gone on a whole scorched earth ad campaign to back his reelection. Now we know that Ken Griffin is backing an opponent. What we just don't know is who. There are four candidates out there. That'll be the next thing that we're going to watch. That is Alex Nitkin of The Daily Line. Also with us, WVON commentator Kimberly Agoen. Thank you both for joining us. Have a great weekend.
That's it for the weekly news recap. And if you want to dive deep into the stories behind the headlines, make sure you hit the subscribe button for this podcast. Then take a few seconds to give us a rating and a review. Doing that helps people to find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. We'll meet again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.